Welcome to The Radio Cure. We're a show that looks at new albums and artists in and around the indie music landscape. This week, Jeremy and I are heading back to the bathroom. Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman is a gritty, first-hand account of the bands and personalities that defined a new generation of New York rockers. It's part two this week, The Class of 2001. It's next on The Radio Cure. Hey, Jerry. What's up, dude? How are you doing? Good. Yeah, we got, we got our first snow today. Uh, very light dusting. That People get all up about that in Colorado. It's like the first snow is some sort of, um, I, I don't know, some sort of like religious experience for people out it here. It is. All those fucking ski bums and shit that live out there. <laughs> they love that yeah. shit. Yeah, so they get, they get super excited. I've ski season is officially here <laughs> it took long enough like it usually starts earlier right like usually- yeah i think the places were making snow and opening and shit like that sure already, but we got our first snow uh, here uh this past saturday first night in a while that we actually decided to go out to a concert it was a huge fucking snowstorm oh yeah the vagabond concert vagabond. How, did, how was that it was fucking excellent it was so where'd you guys good. see them uh the bowery Her? ballroom the bowery oh that that comes up in our uh text uh, for today, it does. Couple yes. bands playing in the Bowery. Now, where is that? Is that in um, Manhattan or is that in Brooklyn? It is in Manhattan. Uh, mm-hmm. Fittingly enough, in the neighborhood called the Bowery. Oh, that's well, where uh, that's where Katz's Deli is. We went there. Oh, okay. It's like literally right on Houston, there, right? Uh, m- more or less, yeah. Katz's almost right there on Houston. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. Is that a cool place uh, to be at night? Um, it is. I mean, it was snowing really hard, which is aesthetically very pleasing. But, you know, when mm-hmm. you're going everywhere on foot, it's a bit of a pain in the dick. But it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> it looked yeah. very cool. Nice. That does. That sounds like romantic in some way. Like, very romantic. Yeah. Not in like the textual, like a right. the art art movement romantic. Yeah, I know. You're exactly right. <laughs> um. Yeah, we're coming out. I hope you get a little snow, but it's not a pain in the dick to, right. to move around. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would be my ideal uh, situation. A little, little dusting to to give us some uh, charm to the city. Yeah, a little snow in Manhattan, especially at night, is very pleasing to the eye. I uh, I, I still haven't uh, nailed down my shoe selection. It's it's a it's a tricky one. I, I've got my big shit kicking boots that um, are waterproof, mm-hmm. right? Um, but they got like big heels on them and, and, uh, you know, if we're walking several miles, yeah, that's going to be uncomfortable. But if I wear my Stan Smith or some sort of tenny, mm-hmm. uh, sneaker, I, I run the chance of, of, of soaking my socks. And that is maybe the worst thing for me. Yes. I just, I cannot handle that. Well, and I mean, this really isn't something that I have nailed down either. And this is my third winter here. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's like a daily challenge. Be like, okay, what am I going to put on? Like my shit kicking boots or my sneakers. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, there's probably a shoe in there somewhere that that fits both purposes, but I don't own it. Oh yeah, neither do I. I wore my and shit kickers to uh, Vagabond. I did not regret it. We did a lot of walking, and it worked out <laughs> all right for me. So I don't know. Maybe yeah, air on the side of that. No, I'm probably gonna wear the I'm probably gonna wear the big boots onto the plane, which is a bitch when you have to take them off in sure. the line. But you don't want to pack those things. That, that no. takes up like the whole 
situation there. Yeah, you can't, gotta you, you know, gotta stuff like, in like your underwear and shit in the in the holes of the yeah. boots and stuff because you have no room. Yeah, it's less of a hassle, I think, probably to take them off at security than it would be to pack them. Mm-hmm. I think just you are one kind of one thing, and then kind of smash your tennies in there. Mm-hmm. The and if you need backpack. to on the plane, you can fucking smash a goddamn terrorist in the face with them. Or on your feet. <laughs> yeah, dude, they are serious boots. <laughs> Okay, well, th- this week we are talking about New York City, and it's getting me excited to come uh, see you, definitely, man, this book. It's so fun. It's, right? It's got so many kind of great little nuggets about each of the band and what they thought of each other, but then also the city. It's just, we yeah. talked about that in the first part, where uh, the city just kind of comes alive through the music that you see in like the different venues and stuff, and you just kind of start to see the city in a whole new light or a... Um, a first light if you are not familiar with New York, but it's really cool. Yeah. And after living here for three years, it, it like has reinvigorated me too. Being like, oh, I know where that is. I know mm-hmm. where that is. It's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Leveling up. Leveling up. Leveling up. <laughs> um, before we get into the meat of the, the text here on the second part, I did want to plug our t shirts one more time. This is the last week. Uh, we have a uh, campaign over at Bonfire where uh, you can pick out your shirt. It's the Boombox logo t-shirt. Probably going to be doing something else next year. So this is the last chance to get these, as my dad used to say. That's not a threat. It's a promise. (laughs) Did you ever get that line? (laughs) No, I have said sarcastically to people before, is that a threat or is that a promise? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Same vein. Yeah, it was just like to clarify right off the bat. Yeah. It's kind of guy who was, um, but yeah, they they're twenty dollars, and uh, we'll put the link in the show notes, and uh, they will ship around um, like in a week or so. I guess maybe if this comes out almost on like the week before Christmas, then they'll probably ship like right after Christmas or so, and get there first of of the year. Um, but that's kind of how it works. Like you buy it. And then once the campaign ends, they print them all and ship them all out. So kind of like in a mass shipping there. Fresh shirt, hot off the presses. Hot off the presses. If you want to surprise so. someone with a little post-Christmas gift, they'll yeah. be they will be shocked, amazed, and just in awe of you. Yeah, it'll be it'll be a great little way to ring in the new year. <laughs> um, okay, so we left off last time with basically the formation of uh, the LCD sound system. Tim Goldsworthy and um, James Murphy kind of came together. James Murphy did some drugs, kind of <laughs> chilled everybody out, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had uh, like a moment of clarity. And this is definitely in the Manhattan scene. We were talking mm-hmm. about Alphabet City last time and uh, the East Village and different venues over there and uh part one kind of ends with this conversation of electroclash and james murphy says uh, electroclash and dfa had a shared idea create the new york as it's supposed to be instead of complaining about how boring it is now new york has a lot of spectators that are waiting for something to happen if you do something interesting people are going to go yeah and even after reading this in the book i just like a few minutes ago, just checked out the Wikipedia on Electro Clash because I still wasn't mm-hmm. like quite sure exactly what that meant. Was that a term you were familiar with before this book? No, it wasn't. And I was 
I also went to Wikipedia because I was having a hard time understanding how they were making a distinction between DFA and Electroclash. Right. It's probably one of those artistic artists on artist distinctions, you know. Mm-hmm. That don't really we the, the the main populace probably doesn't see the difference, but I mean it's basically you know dance music, house music, and it maybe has a little bit less of a rock feel than DFA was going for. Is that maybe? Yeah, and I also feel like uh, from what I gathered from <laughs> Wikipedia is that Electro Clash is more would draw from like the eighties and stuff, and what DFA was doing mm-hmm. was going more a little bit farther back. Like the like, there's no like disco and electro clash mm-hmm. from what I understand. Okay, yeah. Uh, and the, the main band that they talk about is uh, Fisher Spooner, which is basically Warren Fisher and Katie Spooner. Now, were they in any other bands? Ooh, you know, I think so. I can't remember. It's probably in the book. I hope you're all reading along mm-hmm. with us. Correct <laughs> us. So a guy named Larry T, he seems to be kind of like the promoter of these type bands. Mm -hmm. And um, he was saying uh, people kept telling me that I had to do something for Fisher Spooner. And I was like, what are they? Oh, that's not a rock band. They're an art performance, electronic music band that knows the art world. Matthew Barney style, Uh, big group dance numbers and then sharp pointed electro music. I really needed a rock band, but I was willing to look at everything at that point. Uh, so that, that kind of makes a distinction for me in the sense that it seems like it, it's more straight electronic music that has this more artsy bent towards it than, mm-hmm. than this kind of rock band bent that DFA might have been going for. Yeah, and the like kind of like performance art aspect to it is interesting to mm-hmm. me. Very 1980s. That whole mm-hmm. performance art thing went crazy in New York. It's like, what is what am I looking at right now? Is this theater? Is this art? Is this music? I don't really know. Yeah, kind of like a... The only thing I can really think of to relate it to is like David Byrne and like Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I mentioned Matthew Barney last time. Uh, he did the Craig Max Cremaster Cremaster cycle. Yeah, um, and uh, if you go look at that up on YouTube, you, you'll first be like, "What the fuck?" But then kind of understand what it means by like this performance and also electronic music. Yeah, I'd get super high. That'd be my personal recommendation mm-hmm. before you watch that. <laughs> Yeah, it's the kind of nightmares that David Lynch has. Yeah. <laughs> you think the David Lynch movie is your nightmare? Well, David Lynch's nightmares is a Matthew Barney. <laughs> so, yeah, they're kind of coming out of the art world, and it's pretty straightforward. They have uh, a really big hit called Emerge. It really kind of takes like the dance scene by storm there, and everyone kind of by the end talks about how much, you know, it's kind of. This, oh, okay, yeah. Well, they had a merge, yeah. Mm-hmm. Heard that one. Right. <laughs> you don't need to be merge from nothing. You don't need to tear away. Yeah, I felt like other people around the scene, for, for my reading of it was that, like, People were kind of like annoyed by them, would you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah, it just it seemed like it was like okay, it's right. just a little too much, you know. And the way they talk, know, maybe too like European book, almost. Like maybe is maybe it's just me, but the way the the people from Fisher Spooner, Fisher and Spooner, if that that's their names, right? 
<laughs> yeah, but it's jammed together, so I say Fisher Spooner. Fisher right? Spooner. The ba- yeah, yeah, but they seem, they do seem like kind of pretentious. Maybe that's just my reading of it, but the way they talk. Yeah, absolutely. They were coming out of the art world mm-hmm. for sure. Here's another one from Adam Green, which we'll hear about later. My impression of Electric Lash was that it was a person singing karaoke to their own songs, and <laughs> it would rely on that person's Warhol superstar power. Uh, to make you enjoy their show. So yeah, the this reference to Andy Warhol and the factory. Yeah. Uh, that it, it wasn't about the actual object that they're creating, but more about the 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 scene that was around it. The kind right. of the, right. the whole thing that they were making. Mm-hmm. That kind of puts a capstone on this electronic music thing because they're gonna go to the the more rock uh, in the the second part here. Um, but a few things that happened right before they get into the strokes and the yeah, 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 and stuff like that was uh, Napster. Uh, that really started to change how record companies were thinking, <laughs> yeah. how they were dealing with people. <laughs> um, I'm sure everyone has heard of the Napster thing, but um, it, it really kind of changed how people were thinking about music. Uh, Michael Hirshhorn, Napster was a big deal. Napster was this massive disruption. It's not like we weren't in possession of this knowledge. The problem was that we didn't understand it in relation to our business. David Gottlieb. It was like somebody not seeing their midlife crisis coming. Uh, The music industry had always to the point come up with another format that was more successful from 78s to 45s to full LPs to cassettes to 8-tracks to cassettes to the CD. They saw it as a benefit. They saw it as something that they could make their own because they were content owners. No one saw what was coming on the horizon. And that's that's really the problem is that the content just got like disseminated to the masses. Yeah. They could no longer control the content. Yeah, cuz like from the steps from like vinyl to like cassette and eight track and like all that stuff, it was still all like controlled by these companies and this Mm -hmm. was like essentially unprecedented this style of music distribution yeah uh, there was kind of this uh, moment of clarity for david gottlieb on this flight back from la and he said i saw two high school kids with a portfolio of cds Uh, only one in 30 was store-bought the rest were burned so i asked these two kids all right how do you do this what what do you do why don't you go buy the cds and they told me there was only one good song on it, so it's better just to make a mix. <laughs> I'm like, okay, but you have this Dave Matthews CD, and this kid says, yeah, one person buys it, and we all trade it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because I was just sitting there thinking, oh, my God, we're dead. <laughs> You're like, we're, we're old as fuck. So you remember that, right? Like how insane oh, yeah. it was. Like, I can burn this? That was incredible. Mm-hmm. And even when it was happening, the um, when you could just take a CD and burn it and give it to your friends, you kind of knew that they were going to figure out how to fucking stop this shit, of right? Course, I mean, yeah. we we knew that we were kind of they're in like, like this golden we're, age. We're of, like, on just get borrowed we need. time with this shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were going to find find out how to protect it. Although, if you still go and buy the fucking CD, you can just put it in and burn it, right? Yep, that's still that's still the case. That is still the case. Just no one buys them anymore, right? The de- they they were able to find a way to to protect the digital downloads, but still they're not protected. No, not in any like real and, and way. And it's not like, going to be. I mean, if you're under the age of like I don't know, everyone younger than us, you just you can just yeah. get anything you want for free on the internet. I'm I'm not like <laughs> bit torrents and whatnot. I have a vague understanding of it, but I'm just a little bit too old. 
you can still get anything. Yeah, you want and for I free. just I don't want to hassle with it, you know. Right. I'd rather just pay for it because you get to that age where you just you'd rather pay for something. Yeah, yeah. You, it, maybe that's you when you become about, an adult. I want to support the band and stuff like that. Yeah, that's when you become uh, an adult when you make the decision. Yeah. Like, I'm just gonna pay for this. Yeah, <laughs> it's easier to use my money than yeah. just to waste my fucking time with this shit. Yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting conundrum, but it really kind of flipped everything on their heads. And it really comes in later, too, when the strokes start going out and touring and people have already heard their stuff. And people are like, we haven't even made a record. How are you getting this? And right. So- somehow it's getting disseminated. The EP is getting disseminated through the Internet and uh, people are hearing it. So it's a benefit and a curse kind of a thing. Mm hmm talks about the rapture and James Murphy says the rapture were the catalyst for everything next for DFA. I was like, we're going to make that record for you. A record like airs moon safari or Radiohead's OK computer, the record you need to own to feel like you knew what was happening. Uh, so I guess in the rapture, he really saw, uh, that, that special brand of electro rock yeah. that he was looking for. Yeah, and they have that like, kind of punk flair that mm-hmm. he later adopted with LCD. It's it was fun to like hear him say that because like James Murphy's like such an egomaniac. It feels like anytime he says like, "Yeah, this is where this came from," that seems very mm-hmm. important. Yeah, you, you kind of uh, he seems like the sage like uh, wisdom. Amongst all these little fucking kids. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, they are so young. Everyone is so young. <laughs> I know. What the fuck? I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? What are you doing at 18 and 19, this shit? Like, how is this even possible? Right? I can't even remember what I was doing then. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can't either. Nothing at all important. No. <laughs> yeah. Or even interesting. You know? No, neither, neither of us were like forging the grad work of what indie music was going to become unlike these people <laughs> no I, w- I was still trying to figure out if it like made sense that god made the universe in seven <laughs> days or not you know <laughs> i had a long way to go <laughs> uh, a lot of shit to unpack before i was going to make any indie music headway mm-hmm. okay so the plant bar uh it seems like when the rapture kid gets to New York, he kind of finds a home at this plant bar, and uh, it was kind of the hub of the scene for DFA types, right? Uh, yes. Uh, Luke Jenner being the rapture kid. There it is. Thank you. No problem. I, lo- I love them. It's like a very brief little section of the book, but I love them talking about him. They just like gave him a job because they're like, mm-hmm. we really like your band, but he was like terrible at his job. He had like never had one before. Like at a at a much sadder note, he had like a really really rough upbringing. Like yeah, it v- sounded like they yeah. kind of like took him under his wing because he was like a broken uh, animal, kind of that they found on the side of the road or something. Yeah, he had moved out there from maybe not Seattle, but the Seattle area somewhere around mm-hmm. there. <clears throat> yeah, and they just like gave him a job, and he <laughs> he like forgets to lock up the bar one night, but they just all loved him <laughs> so much they didn't give a shit. He just left the bar unlocked, and then he locked the uh, he locked the guy in that had like passed out in the bathroom. <laughs> Poor customer. <Yeah. laughs> He's like, and they never fired me. Yeah, yeah. There it is. <laughs> I left the door open to the bar. Another time I locked somebody in the bar. A customer. All night. They passed out in the bathroom. I forgot to check. (laughs) (laughs) 
I love how everyone hates Darren Aronofsky too. Oh, that made me so happy because I hate him so much. <laughs> <laughs> he was like hanging out at all these places, but no yeah. one fucking liked him. I know it's so funny. <laughs> Tim Goldsworthy, Darren Aronofsky would turn up at Plant Bar with a wife beater on, leaning on the bar and saying, "Hey, what are you guys drinking?" <laughs> He's such a tosser. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> that it, it, Goldsworthy is um, British, right? Yeah, yeah. Tosser is such a British. To- yeah, a tosser is definitely just a British term. He's a, he reminds me of the super nerdy Dungeons and Dragons kid who really wants to be cool. There's so much about being cool in this book. It's really yes. interesting how much these really cool people were actually really interested in being cool and defining know, cool right? and like and deciphering who was cool and who wasn't cool. You think that the cool kids don't talk about being cool. That's only a thing that non-cool kids talk about, but that is not true. Yeah. They're very self-conscious about their coolness. Yeah, well, and I, I think it's only apparent with, like, LCD sound system because there, so many of their lyrics are about trying to be cool. But mm-hmm. still, I also, like, thought, hearing it, like, they're, like, retrospectively looking at this and... It was actually a, a mm-hmm. thing. Like everyone was trying to be yeah. so cool, yeah. and, and th- th- that's kind of how plant uh, became so important. Because you could go out and you could have fun until two in the morning, uh, but the power that comes out of continuing that fun until ten o'clock the next morning in a group of like-minded people is incredible. You're getting into that magic area, and in awakening, Plant Bar gave us that space to do that. And that was Tim Goldsworthy again. But it was, it's almost as if these places started defining who was cool and and yeah. uh, they get into how things move into Williamsburg um, and you get the Lux over there. And there, it was, there was almost a sense in which it was like, OK, there wasn't this red or, you know, behind the ropes kind of a thing where only the cool kids got in. It was just like anyone that wanted to party could go to Lux. Yeah. And so <laughs> there there was starting to be this kind of. Um, movement out to Williamsburg because it was one it was getting too expensive but also it was just getting too cool for school and so you couldn't fucking get in yeah and (laughs) I like I can't remember who the quote was from but they're (laughs) they're talking about uh, like moving out to Williamsburg and they're like cabs won't even go there which is so (laughs) funny to think about now because like like it's now, insane. like Williamsburg is like played out. Like Williamsburg isn't even cool anymore. It's like Bushwick. So it's like twice removed from it. It's so crazy to think about. Yeah. I mean, we're going to be talking about how it's like going to move all the way to Connecticut or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's going to be Ohio by the time we're old. It's moved so far away from. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it's going to like shift back west <laughs> once we run out of space in the east. The idea of of people living illegally in loft spaces is just like a blows my mind now. I know, right? Like they're they're talking this book about like ten people be living illegally in a loft. Like what? And this is in our fucking century. It, it, it <laughs> seems like something that would happen in like Mad Men or something. You know? Yeah. <laughs> So everyone moves out there, and and this is kind of setting up the class of 2001. Uh, Sarush Alvi, I think he was a part of Vice, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Brooklyn music scene was Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's, Interpol, Rapture, uh, Nick Zinner living on Metropolitan Avenue. Interpol was practicing underneath the our office uh, on North 4th. Every day we'd see them, Carlos coming in with his fucking crazy outfits, Paul <laughs> Banks. Uh, we were friends with all these guys. We were all coming up together. So the the rock scene is kind of moving out. 
um, save for the Strokes, who are um, interesting story. And I'm yeah. um, kind of ready to get into them unless you have anything else. No, we should move on to them because there's a lot to get into here. So the first thing that you have to understand about the Strokes is that they are Manhattan City kids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Julian Casablanca's dad owned a modeling agency, and many of them seemed to have wealth and went to private schools. Kind of a vampire weekend situation. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, yeah, it makes up not college like private like yeah yeah prep prep schools <laughs> yeah uh, so we're talking about we're talking about high school kids uh, it's like those uh movies what was that movie that came out um around this time and it had um reese witherspoon in it uh legally blind <laughs> <laughs> no it was like a election prep school uh dramas it was like a murder there was a murder it was all those people from like i know what you did last summer oh, okay. uh anyway doesn't matter the you have this kind of idea of like these kids in like their school uniforms doing coke and shit and in, in their parents uh giant lofts uh, in Manhattan because their parents are like somewhere in Paris or something. Right. Uh, That's kind of the the feeling that you get from these guys. And in that sense, like to be cool was just what they were. They were just cool, you know? Yeah. They got no, yeah. They were the kids out like smoking in elementary school. Like it's fucking (laughs) cool. Like I don't, (laughs) yeah, they made a whole living on being cool. I think at one point in time they even talk about how like their names are cool. How do, how do all these people? Yes. Fabrizio Moretti, Julian Casablanca, Nick <laughs> Valenci. Yeah. Uh, like how do these people meet each other and be in the same place? Yeah, it's that's just, what the people from uh, NME were saying. Yeah. <laughs> like this this can't be real. <laughs> Fabrizio Fabs uh, and Julian Casablanca went to school together. And they grew up together, right? And then mm-hmm. they met Nick Valenci yes. later. Yes. Uh, he was a little bit younger. Yeah. But also a New York kid, but not rich. I can't. I can't think. Yeah, of I'm. It. I'm pretty sure that's right. Le- Nick Valenci is the one that Lizzie Goodman, the author of the book, was working with at like some cafe somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. So they have they have Nick and Fab and Julian. And then uh, the other big one, Albert Hammond Jr., they went to boarding school in France for a little while, and that's yeah. how they <laughs> knew each other. It's, he seemed to be a little bit of an outsider that they they kind of uh, brought in, a little dorkier. Yeah, well, and he had in his Albert Hammond's dad was Albert Hammond Sr., who I think we've talked about on the podcast before. We didn't and never heard of him before, but he was apparently a relatively successful musician. As he told Albert, yes, like follow his dreams of being a musician and like bought all their gear and shit. Yeah, that was the that was the interesting contrast between them and Interpol, the next band that we'll uh, talk about. They had this real struggle mm-hmm. uh, with their gear and trying to like get all yeah. that stuff and get started. And and uh, it's it did seem like the Strokes were just kind of like, oh well, we got this credit card and then gear showed up and we needed shit. It was there. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of things came together for them. Mm-hmm. 
So just to end, the, the Strokes are largely first-generation Americans like the Ramones, but the Strokes had a kind of European outlook on a lot of things. I remember thinking that those guys were actually pretty refined. I felt like I was somebody from the suburbs, and I felt like I went uh, to the mall while the Strokes seemed to have access to the entire world. So there, there, there was kind of this growing up on the island, growing up on... Uh, Manhattan mm-hmm. gave them this kind of sophistication that was really the the basis of their their cool. Yeah, absolutely. You hear about kids like growing up in the city, especially like s- somewhat shitty kids. You know, they go out and smoke behind mm-hmm. school and stuff. There's definitely a mystique there. Uh, the interesting thing is also what they listen to. Oh yeah. Growing up, that was more like we did grunge uh, mm-hmm. and like Stone Temple Pilots and all that normal stuff that you listen to. They just kind of like fell onto this whole uh, kind of like Velvet Underground television sound. Yeah. Somebody's brother gave one of them a greatest hits of uh, the Velvet Underground. And they're like, oh, yeah. That's good. That's good. We should do something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, for, I forget exactly where it is, but I remember there was some story in there, like Julian and Albert and all of them, like dressing like grunge kids, which is really hard to mm-hmm. imagine. Like I know, with right? This, with this image you have of the strokes in your mind, they're like, they're like the first dudes wearing like skinny jeans. Like, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. You have that feeling of like those. Rock stars from the seventies. Yeah, that's what you, uh, that's what you think of when when you see them. Okay, here's the story that I was looking for. Uh, so Nick Valencia, we were doing shows in New York as the Strokes. We had a bunch of songs and they, that weren't on our first album. We did those for two years. Then one day at rehearsal, Julian had one song that started playing, uh, that we started playing, "The Modern Age." Suddenly it was like, whoa, we need more like this one. We should get rid of these other ones. Uh, the others are trying to be more musically complex, like Dorsey, with some Baroque elements in there. The Modern Age was like, whoa, this feels like a Velvet Underground song. It was so cool and simple. And then uh, Nikolai Fraser, my brother w- had given Julian the best of the Velvet Underground at Christmas dinner one year. That's when we found another channel. Uh, the Modern Age wasn't the first Is This It song that was written. There were some before, but once Modern Age came up, it was like, yeah, we need to sound like this. And then Last Night closely followed. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Modern Age, that is a great fucking song. Oh man. It it is absolutely great. And and it you can start to hear that stroke sounds kind of yeah. come out of it seems to me like they were kind of looking for something cool. It, it, they had listened to just the bands that you listened to in the nineties mm-hmm. and they knew they didn't want to do that, but they didn't know what really they wanted. And it was just kind of like, okay, we need something like cool. We need something old. We need something vintage. It was really the first time when, for me, it seems like it was really the first time that uh, 
that was like the thought, like, let's do something kind of vintagey, you know? Yeah. Not just kind of the next thing that happens in the progression. It feels like the, you know, the pop, everything, they're talking about Limp Bizkit and that kind of stuff like that. Like, yes. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's go backwards, not try to go forwards. Yeah. Because it did. It felt like rap rock was going to be where rock was going to go because all of a sudden there's like this rap thing that just happened Mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s. And so let's go there. Yeah. Thank God that's not what (laughs) happened. I know. Is there anything worse than rap rock? (laughs) I mean, it is and it isn't what happened. There was just this whole other side. And that's kind of how it's been now. I mean, ever since like Limp Bizkit and Blink-182 and stuff like that, there's been the great rock that people who like rock and roll listen to. Uh, yeah. And then there's been like all that other shit on top of it, like Imagine Dragons now or Coldplay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, or Foo Fighters or whatever. And it's like there's this whole story of rock that is like this whole, like, no, you don't understand it. If you're like, nah, I don't really like rock. And you're thinking of Imagine Dragons and. Yeah. Um, uh, Foo Fighters and stuff like that over the last couple of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> decades, then there's this whole other thing that's been happening. Yeah. One, well, what I, I was going to save this for later when we were talking about the NME stuff and the strokes being in the UK, but it, it feels appropriate now. They, it, they like talking about how the, everything fell together for them so well, they, they timed this perfectly too, totally by accident because, they were they're so like tight and smooth like the songs mm-hmm. they made that it was something different than uh grunge that had dominated yeah. the rock scene in the 90s mm-hmm. and then there's a quote in there uh about why they blew up in England and it's because they said that everyone at that time was trying to be Radiohead but there's only one Radiohead so it was something totally different it was like so much more clean than grunge, but it wasn't someone trying to imitate Radiohead. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the quote said Coldplay and Travis being the English fans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, um, there's this great quote. I, I'm not going to be able to find it on, on the ready here. Um, but it, it essentially says every decade pays for the sins of the decade before that, where, um, you have you have a backlash from the hair bands and that's Nirvana. Yes. You know, and um, the backlash from the grunge heavy pedal distortion was this cleaner rock that mm-hmm. that these guys were were doing. And uh, and also the backlash from things getting more and more and more complicated. And yes, yes. Uh, like electronic. And these guys were like, nope. We're going to four track this bitch. Yeah, we're going to make two and a half minute guitar songs. The mm-hmm. tracks aren't going to like bleed into each other like shoegaze or anything. It's <laughs> very clean. It was so yeah. different. Like, I don't think I appreciated it at the time, but it really is so different than everything else then. Yeah, and it's interesting that they kind of like pulled everything back because they were saying, oh, Dorsey, kind of Baroque and there's just all these elements that they wanted to bring in like, Nope, let's, let's pull it back. And, uh, they were looking for a sound and they, they found it in that. (laughs) Um, 
Sorry, I just got to the part where Albert Hammond Jr. was talking about how he pulls out his balls all the oh, time. Oh, yeah. He, was, he, put, <laughs> he put his balls in someone's mouth. That's like how it started. And he started pulling his balls yeah. out everywhere. <laughs> this guy walks up and says, I don't know who looks more like Sid Beller, Barrett, you or you. And Fab was looking at him and I turned around and he was like, my balls look like Sid Barrett. <laughs> <laughs> and I had my balls out. <laughs> and I had my balls out. <laughs> That's a great line. My balls look like Sid Barrett. <laughs> I know. I'm going to try and use that one in my everyday life. I don't know how easy that is. Yeah, I don't really try. think you need to pull your balls out to use the phrase. I think you can oh, just no, you say just it. Oh, no, you just say it. You don't got to yeah. pull your balls out. Well, you could do it very, oh, hey, dude, isn't it that guy who looks like uh, Spike Lee? My balls look like my Spike balls Lee. balls look like Spike Lee. Yeah, you could use yeah. it with anyone. The ball's out. That is such a college thing. My God, I played right? sports in college. And it's just like, if I see another set of fucking balls out of context, that's the really thing. The, the bad thing about the gross thing about a ball sack when it's out of context is that it's just like this kind of like, you know, real papery, wrinkly skin with mm-hmm. this old man hair on yeah. it. <laughs> and so if you see it in the context of a naked body, it kind of makes sense. But just pulling your just ball sack out of, out of your shorts yeah. and they're just there. The old, uh, my, my buddy used to love the I sat in gum trick. Oh, I sat in gum. You look down, he's just holding like a little piece of his ball sack out. Yeah, just like kind of like, like bulging it gum. out of the... Mm-hmm. <laughs> hanging some brain what is that from <laughs> that's from a movie what is it from it's just hanging brain yeah that's a great that's a great line too it's got those veins in them that's what it looks like a brain for <laughs> i like that analogy god how do girls even we're the most disgusting looking people in the world yeah well they're starting to figure it out we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna be extinct sooner than later, before them certainly. Boy, I gotta say, I know you don't want to rank like uh, sexual misconduct, but for <laughs> how ugly men are, I really am starting to feel like that Louis C.K.'s act is kind of like coming to the top. It's just it's so. Uh, just look at my nasty fucking shit right here. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> So accosting. It's kind of like next level. It's kind of like emotional distress more than physical distress. It's kind of like a kind of like a next level uh, mind game shit that he's playing there. Yeah, it's like next level power trip, which is what most of these things are power trips. Yeah. But that is a next level power trip. Yeah, it's not a good old fashioned groping. It's like a next level like fucking. Jedi mind trick, ball sack mind trick, <laughs> ball sack mind trip. That's a good name for something. Yeah, I don't know what kind of music a ball sack mind trip would play. Probably Prog something rock. douchey where like frat boys do something German and Rammstein esque. <laughs> oh, that's not what I was thinking, but that might make sense. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more like that band, like Infected Mushroom. I don't even know if that's a band, but whatever. Uh, that sounds like a um, a euphemism for your ball sack too, Infected Mushroom. <laughs> it's all coming together. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's put a pin in the Strokes. Uh, that's kind of the modern age. They found their sound. Uh, and then they kind of take a look at, at how Interpol meets 
Yes, but while no. we're putting a pin in that, I really need to pee or I'm not going to be able to continue. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. All right, I'll be back in a second. Leave, that, leave that in. I'm back. I, I heard you shuffle back in. I figured. <laughs> I, was, I was like that. I was. Sometimes I'll catch like a conversation between you and Julie. Yeah, she, she's not here right now. She's at the Viacom Christmas party, which I am not invited to. Ooh. <laughs> not, on, one. not on her part. She's not high enough on the list to get a plus one. <laughs> None of them are. They have like a very strict policy that only employees with employee IDs can go to any of these parties. Jesus. Austerity measures. Yeah, it's fucked up. Okay, so yeah, let's put a uh, pin in... Um, the Strokes, because there's a couple other bands here that are, it's all happening kind of in uh, 2000, 2001. This is all kind of happening concomitantly, but the, the story is kind of jumping back and forth. And uh, one of the other bands uh, that meets around this time is Interpol. Did you get into Interpol? Not a lot. I, I mean, I was uh, me either. like into indie music enough at this point that I have heard probably all of it but it was never yeah. like a personal choice of mine to listen to them and they they are a band reading this book especially it's made me think maybe i should revisit it yeah i i, I think what turned me off at, at first was the i was in such like that radiohead mode uh that the baritone coming back in mm -hmm. kind of threw me threw me for a loop it also seemed a little more like less straightforward, a little more, I don't know, sophisticated or uh, a little more musical. Yeah. And a lot I, more was going on. I like how they talk in here about uh, how he like, came to be the singer. Uh, and the, <laughs> he was basically like yelling to be louder than the drums. That <laughs> kind of <laughs> made his like signature sound like that almost like monotone uh -huh. type of. I don't know. Reminds me again of like David Byrne at some moments. Which one is the 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 singer? Is it uh, Paul Banks? Yeah, Paul Banks. So uh, Daniel Kessler, I think, right, was the one that wanted to was writing the music and wanted to be the front man. Yes. And then Paul was like, "Yeah, I kind of don't want to be in a band unless I'm the front man." And Daniel was just like, "Ah, oh, do it. I don't care. Whatever." Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. Uh, but these guys met at an NYU summer program uh, in Paris, just out of high school. Uh, Paul Banks listened to a lot of hip hop. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, he was into uh, Kanye West. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at, at the time. Yeah, there wasn't really much there. A guy named Carlos joined the band. <laughs> Good job, Carlos. Wore dresses in college. It's a thing. <laughs> But yeah, basically the the it ends with uh, I got the guys together in the dorm room and we had some pretty good musical chemistry. So this is all at NYU, I take it, huh? Mm -hmm. That is my understanding. There was oh, there was <laughs> there was a quote in there that I enjoyed very much from Paul Banks talking about like songwriting, mm -hmm. and it, it was a pretty long quote. But the end of it was if I got everything I wanted from girls, I wouldn't write shit. And yeah, I was just getting ready to read that. I'll, I'll read the whole thing. Oh, yeah. oh, oh perfect. <laughs> okay. Uh, some of my dis dissatisfaction with life started with seeing a really beautiful girl and having this unbelievably longing uh, and sense of sadness about the lack of connection or the lack of awareness of my existence. 
So what I would do, the only thing that would keep me in my own skin would be to say, well, I'm going to make something so fucking good that I'm worthy of that thing that I lust after. If I ever, if I got everything I wanted from girls, I wouldn't write shit. Yeah, that's, <laughs> he's basically, he's describing like a very specific type of insecurity that's very mm-hmm. intriguing to me. And that's one of the m- main reasons I want to go back and listen to their music, like hearing him say that. Mm-hmm. Well, and how many people could you apply that to? Uh, literally everyone. <laughs> Every male artist, creator of anything. Yeah. You're like, good. I'm going to make something yeah. great, then women will appreciate how great I am, and then I'm on easy street. <laughs> Louis C.K., if I could just make something good enough that girls would let me masturbate in front of them, <laughs> I really feel like I would have made it. <laughs> Uh, it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Louis. Oh, poor me. Well, <laughs> poor you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, you can't even, you know, I mean, it's not like I really went back and watched Cosby Show reruns or anything like that. But uh-huh. Louis C.K. I know. I love I, Louis. I, I use those bits. I you know. You can't use those bits anymore. You can't, you can't use bits from him anymore. I know it's very upsetting. It's like took. I'm not even. I'm like half as funny as I used to be because I can't use any. Right. <laughs> I mean that it probably is how people felt about Bill Cosby. I mean, I I never found Bill Cosby funny, which I'm happy about. But mm-hmm. yeah, like like white dudes in their 30s, Bill Cosby is Louis C.K. That's true. That's true. Here's the quote that I was looking for earlier uh, from Daniel Kessler. Being abandoned in New York is fun, but it's not fun. It's expensive and you're broke and everyone is scrounging for money, not the strokes. And, and you get your rehearsal space for an hour or two and your equipment is all broken. You spend the first hour saying, this thing's broken. <laughs> that was a very hard time. We spent four years without having anyone pay any attention. It was like being in the minor leagues, but it gave us time to develop. By the time we did get attention, we were solidified in our foundation and had our foundation. And it was very hard for an outside force to penetrate that. I I think this is a really interesting comparison to the Strokes because they were they were actually a buzz about them before they had even released their EPs or before they even released their first full length album. There there was almost like a stir about them before they were anything to be a stir about. Right. And then there are these bands that really struggle for a long time. If they make it through that struggle, they got their shit honed in so tight Mm -hmm. and they have their sounds so maturely worked out that um, they, they tend to make music longer and last longer uh, because they have that base. Almost seems like I mean I may be jumping ahead here, but that almost seems like the opposite of the yeah yeah yes. It almost seems like I mean it would be dismissive and disrespectful to say they started their band on a whim, but in a certain mm-hmm. context, that is kind of how it happened. The yeah yeah yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I feel like uh, the yeah yeah yes and. Both the strokes were like, I'm feeling something here. We should start a band. There's like this new like band feeling that that we could really th- there's something happening right now. Let's let's tap into it, you know? Yeah. 
the IAS for sure. Karen O seemed like just like crazy party girl who was just knew everybody in the whole entire yes. scene. <laughs> yeah. And finally she was like, I'll do this too. This is something I can do too. Yeah. Uh, and so she just basically said, I'm a front woman. I'm going to do that. I'm going to cover myself in fucking olive oil uh, and yeah. be in a white beard and get on the stage. I love that part. <laughs> yeah. She's, so like, it, it, she's got up there and she's like, it, it just looked like I had huge nipples. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, we'll get right into... Uh, the yeah, yeah, yes. Have you ever heard of the term freak folk? Yes. So I, what what is your feeling of freak folk? Well, the first time I ever heard that term, it was to describe um, Bon Iver, which okay. I think maybe it had been bastardized at that point. Uh, yeah, he was a later freak folk. Mm-hmm. Uh, a girl that sings quiet folk songs, which is hard to believe of Karen O. Yeah. Yeah, I don't that that was interesting to me reading that part because I had always heard it when in like reference to like Bon Iver and also like Father John Misty. Which mm-hmm. so all it meant to me was is essentially folk music like telling a story but with maybe some like psychedelic or mm-hmm. other types of influences in it. Well, now, what about Connor Oberst? He, he's um, interviewed in this. He he, he talks about the yeah uh, um, yeah yeah, yeahs and knowing Nick. Um, lots of Nicks in this. Uh, there Nick are a Zinner. lot of Nicks. Nick Zinner, Brian Long, and Karen O make up the yeah yeah yeahs, and um, he he knows them. So, would you put Connor Oberst in the freak folk? Or um, just folk folk. I I think he's folk folk, but. I mean, like I was saying, I, I'm not sure I understand the term freak folk because it ex- apparently, according to this book, existed way before I thought it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I have I, I, I do not cannot add anything to that. But Karen O and Brian Chase, they met at Oberlin in Ohio uh, as part of the art department which would have been right about the same time I would be in college. So if I had and I was an art major, so if I had gone to Oberlin... I could have been in the IAS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you had gone to Oberlin, you would have been in the IAS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, no, I'm I'm the other Gwyneth Paltrow in Sliding Doors. <laughs> I love the sh- I love Nick Zinner. I have loved Nick Zinner forever. And I I want to bring up a beef here that I have with some people that I know that have talked about how yeah, 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 music is very simple and therefore Nick Zinner is not that talented. Mm-hmm. That's fucking ridiculous. Just because you play something that's simple doesn't mean you're not talented. And I felt no. very validated by this book and everyone saying that like Nick Zinner played in every fucking band in New York forever mm-hmm. and can fucking shred it's just that's what worked for the IAS, this more simple stuff. It doesn't mean you're not good. Well, and they started out as unitard. Mm-hmm. One tard. <laughs> Together. In unison. <laughs> and interestingly, their only single, Year to be Hated, is actually our time on the first e- EP 
of the AAS. It's the year to be hated. So glad that we made it. Cause all the kids in the street whisper sounds that sweet. The stars under their feet. Well, it's the year to be Interesting. That is interesting. They I'm still reworked thinking, it I'm as still a yeah, yeah, yeah song. One tarred line. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to move on from that. <laughs> that seems like such a hipster name for you know what I mean. Like that. That yes. seems like Williamsburg after Williamsburg is played out. That's the kind of name that somebody would come up with, right? Or maybe and, Unicycle. And the way they were, like, the Nick Zinner describes it in the book too. Is that is like very dark like atmospheric just yeah <laughs> of course like that makes sense that sounds like the most hipster shit ever yeah he's we're art school kids karen studied film i studied photography incredibly useful degrees <laughs> i also like that nick zinner is tiny but go ahead is he diminutive he's, he's a micro person <laughs> <laughs> Those micro persons, they tend to get like little chips on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. He seems like a cool guy, though. Very small chips on their shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> small rocks, <laughs> churches. <laughs> so they really get their break. Uh, it seemed like because they were doing the whole freak folk thing. The Strokes come on, and they're like, "Ooh, we should do that because that seems like it's going to be way more popular." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, they get their break for opening for the White Stripes. Yeah, which is amazing. I had never heard that before. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was I was really surprised by that. And the the thing that I loved about it was uh, Nick Zinner saying there was a specific moment I remember outside my loft. I suggested we just play as Unitard. Uh, the White Stripes gig was a week away. I was certain there was no way we could get a drummer. Karen just said, "No, dude, my friend Brian." from Overland just moved here. Uh, he'll learn everything. He can play with us. And so basically they brought Brian Chase in, old friend, to do the show uh, for the White Stripes. And they just gave him a cassette tape. He learned learned them all. Uh, they practiced for an hour, and then yeah. they just did the White Stripes show. That's fucking insane. This is fucking insane, right? Like, I know the White Stripes weren't that big at that point, but that's fucking crazy. Yeah. Like, retrospectively, that's insane. Oh, my it, God. It was. And it was just because they were party kids. Like, yeah. Dave Burton. Uh, David Kaplan was an old friend of mine. We were at the Mars bar one night, and he said, I need an opener. I said, I'll get the yeah, yeah, yeahs to do it. Dave said, what's the yeah, yeah, yeahs? And I said, Nick and that girl at the end of the bar over there. <laughs> Dave also knew Nick from the bar, so he was like, oh, I like uh, And that was that. That's so crazy. just get drunk with the right people yeah. <laughs> and you can be in a band that's, that, that opens for white stripes, even though you've never done nothing. That's what I'm, that's what I'm working on. I just get drunk at bars and hope <laughs> that I open for the white stripes someday. <laughs> you just got to start telling people that you're in a band. 
and you work out the details later. Well, it's just eventually you'll meet somebody that needs uh, a band member, and you're like, yeah, it's just not really working out with my band, uh, Unicycle on Main Street, and <laughs> I'm looking for a new thing. You guys got a spot? Uh, yeah, I'll do that. And so you actually never had a first band. Right. Made up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's move on to the the moldy peaches because they were kind of mentioned with the freak folk situation as well. Had you known these people? Uh, Is this something that was well not on your radar? <laughs> um, so when I started reading this book and they mentioned them, I knew the name Moldy Peaches and I knew the name Kimya Dawson. Front woman. Kim Ye. Kim Ye. <laughs> oh, yeah, shit. It's already, it's already taken. God damn. Well, maybe that's why they don't use it. We've just <laughs> yeah. unraveled a mystery here on the radio yeah. cure. Um, but yeah. <laughs> the mystery I, I of our making. Both of those names, but I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I listened to that track. You listened to it, too. What the fuck is the name of it? See, I don't even remember the name of it, but I knew the song. Anyone but you. Yes. And this sounds definitely more freak folk fringe. You know, this like if if I were to think of something that was like folk adjacent, it sounds something like this. Okay. You're a part-time love friend, a full-time friend. The monkey on your back is the latest trend. I don't see what anyone can see in anyone else. But so anti-folk also. Uh, Adam Green. The the funny thing about this was that he he wore some sort of like bunny costume, and she yes. was in. They all wore costumes. Uh, yeah, they all wore costumes. That was part that of the thing. That was interesting. It seems like they should be in the Electro Clash art art rock kind of thing. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. I'm not opposed to people wearing costumes on stage. You don't see that very much. I, I I think I'd be okay with it. Pro costume. I think a pro costume. So here's what uh, Adam Green says, because this is maybe a kind of a definition of freak folk or anti-folk, anti-folk, symbolized punk folk music. They found the West Village folk scene not to be very accepting, so they started acoustic open mic on the east side. East side. Uh, it was drawing on Woody Guthrie music, psychedelic music, Tom Waits, all kinds of different things. So maybe that's something gesturing at. Yeah. That makes sense. Freak folk. That's what I was thinking, like the folk with like psychedelic, what have you. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite part of the moldy peaches is where uh, um, Fab uh, sticks up for them because the, <laughs> the glass Weijin, uh is making fun of his bunny costume or whatever. Oh yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have that uh, quote in front of you or? No, but oh, we okay. should say that that um, the moldy peaches are kind of linked to uh, the strokes in a weird way, where they, they yes. seem to kind of open for them quite a bit at <laughs> yeah. the beginning stage. Even though I don't really know how those two sounds kind of like came together, but um, I mean, I don't think the sounds did. I think it was just kind of the people that did. The like, yeah, they just yeah. liked this weird <laughs> shit that was going on. Yeah, they're like we're gonna play together, you know. Uh, shout out to Regina Spector too. She got a mention yep. in Freak Folk as well. Yep. Uh, Fresh in from Russia. She's <laughs> cool. <laughs> from Russia with love. There it is. Okay, so we'll get back to the strokes here. And so that's all kind of happening at the same time. Strokes, Interpol are meeting around the same time. Um, 
the yaya yas are getting to new york everyone's kind of descending on the situation the moldy peaches and then uh the strokes are going to kind of break out of that pack uh first and it's really through two things one they get a uh, residency at the mercury lounge yes uh and then two this rough trade uh from britain right Mm -hmm. um latches on to them and wants to sign them uh, to kind of give them their first start. Yeah. And this is something I was thinking about reading. This is like British people are like so much more receptive to rock music, like Kings Mm -hmm. of Leon back when they were good, like their first, they were big. That was huge huge there. And Mm -hmm. and no one paid attention to them here. So at this point in time, um, they've got that three-song demo that has been making the rounds, and uh, people have been passing it around. Um, Their manager is not managing them quite yet, right? uh, but is kind of on the scene passing the shit around, kind of already kind of making some some connections for them. Uh, Ryan Gentles. Yeah, I was wondering how to, pr- pr- to pronounce his name. Is it Gentles? Gentles? Gen- Gentiles. <laughs> Ryan Gentiles. Not Jewish. Gentiles. Back to the ball conversation. Um, <laughs> that's probably why Albert Hammond Jr. liked him. I was like, oh, yeah, Ryan Genitals. Sure. <laughs> My balls look like Ryan Genitals. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Great callback. But yeah, was it was it the agreement that it was like I need to manage this band because they're going to be so good, and then like I'm not going to take any money now. But once they become big, we'll work something out. That was the deal with with Rough Trade. Oh, with Rough Trade. Okay, yeah. yeah. So um, the I don't think he's officially coming on Ryan, but he he was the one that got it eventually to Rough Trade. Okay, um, and. The, the reason that he is important, too, is that he is the booker, the bookie, no, the booker, the booker. of the Mercury Lounge at this point. Mm-hmm. Somehow he kind of weasels his way in there, but he's he also is young. He's like 20, 21, 22. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like two or three years older than them. Yeah, which is crazy. Um, so this is kind of all going to come together for them through, through him. And... Uh, Rough Trade was one of those main pioneering post-punk labels. Uh, They were a big player in terms of cool post-punk music that actually got to a relatively large audience. Uh, They had the Raincoats. They had Cabaret Voltaire. uh, They had a lot of the really important groups of that era. And then they distributed in collaboration with other distributors around the UK. The guy that was the visionary behind Rough Trade was Jeff Travis. Uh, he had this A&R knack for seeing what was marginal but could become something bigger than marginal, Smiths being the paradigm. The Smiths? The Smiths, yeah. Although it did not say the Smiths. It said Smiths being... Oh, no. It said the Smiths being the paradigm. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, yeah, he he calls Ryan and just says, I want to put this out and sign them and I'll bring them over to England and I'll do a show as soon as they're free. If they're willing to do that, I'll talk it over with them. Um, And then, so then I called them and said, I'll manage your band. So once he heard back from Rough Trade, Ryan was like, okay, I'll I'll manage the band now. 
it was interesting that they wanted like a 20 something as opposed to a stuffy old white guy in like his 50s or 60s which was normal managers apparently yeah yeah maybe that's part of that whole thing like we're not trying to be cool so well or maybe i don't know maybe (laughs) no i i i like it i think that they want cool people around them you know they don't want some fucking douchebag old guy an old funny they want to surround yeah they want to surround themselves with coolness yeah and they want to be cool uh, but Nick Valencia, our first gig at the Mercury Lounge, if I'm remembering correctly, was in August of 2000. Hot as hell outside, 110 <laughs> degrees inside. Uh, sweaty people. I remember I was wearing a leather jacket, even with a lack of air conditioning. You got to stick with the plan. You got to stick with it. I love I that. I love that. I love that. Stick to a plan. Right? You're like, I'm doing this. Like, my circumstances around me don't mm-hmm. matter. I am totally yeah. committed to this. I'm wearing stick. the jacket. It's fucking yeah. beautiful. And there's nothing like a rock star just sweating his balls off. Right? Like, I just love that up there. Fuck. They're just working hard yeah. for you, you know. <laughs> I remember uh, we went and saw um, Damien Rice <laughs> and uh, at Bonnaroo. Uh-huh. It was, uh, I can't remember if it was your Bonnaroo or the Bonnaroo before that I went to. I don't remember seeing Damien Rice at Bonnaroo, but that uh, doesn't necessarily mean anything. That makes sense. <laughs> um, but anyway, it was you know hot as fuck in Tennessee in the middle of the, but he came from like Glasgow or something like that. Uh-huh. And he, I shit you not. He was wearing like a wool knit, like oh. cable knit sweater oh, and God. just like everything decked out for being in like Scotland yeah. or somewhere. Like he was, uh, playing Stonehenge or something is what he looks like. (laughs) (laughs) And he was, he did not take his sweater off. He did not do anything. He just sweat his fucking balls off the whole time. That's good. He was like, he's committed to it. It was like 110% humidity and, you know, uh, 95 degrees out. And he was just sweating balls (laughs) in some sort of, uh, sheep swole sweater. Yeah. It's committing to the, from the highlands. It's great. (laughs) I do. I like it. (laughs) Um, I like it. So they end up uh, making this connection through the Mercury Lounge. They have the residency. That gets them out there. Finally, Rough Trade says, let's do it. And uh, Adam Green says, Ryan asked me if I would be the opener for the first show. They were usually well welcoming to me and then told me they wanted me uh, to open for all the residency shows. I said, well, I have this other band called Moldy Peaches. So... Um, that's how they kind of connected through Ryan uh, with the Moldy Peaches, and they ended up taking them over to UK for the first time. And that's that's really where like the hysteria about uh, the Strokes started. Yes. That first UK trip. Well, and I I like before we move over to the UK, I like that uh, Adam Green saw them at the Mercury Lounge, and it was like they're the venue is giving them beer. They've made it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that was, that was like his, his ceiling for success. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love that. That is Free so beer. true. When you, when you start something is just like, Oh man, if I could just get this many people listen to it, I'd be happy. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> in, in your margin for success is so much lower than actual success. Right. That's the funny thing about it is like, <laughs> usually, usually when you reach that first success, like getting beer that, that you were so far from actual success. Yeah. It's not even funny. 
it is great. There's like something so innocent about it, especially when talking about these like hugely successful bands. It's mm-hmm. like it's like charming to hear that. Like, oh, these guys have made it. They're getting free beer here. It is charming. I think I would be the same way. It's humanizing because oh, that's how you think at first. You're like, oh man, if I could just get enough money to buy my equipment, you know? And yeah. Then it, you're like, if it, I could just get enough money to like pay for my apartment, then I could just do this all the time. And well, and if we were getting free beer for this podcast, I would retire. If I could just that's it. If I could get a sponsor that we could pay free beer yeah. for the podcast, <laughs> just send, send me tons of beer. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> Um, okay, so they get over there, and um, just the Brits love them. Yeah, that's what I was. Yeah, what I was talking about earlier. The Brits love good mm-hmm. rock music. They're like clinging on to it. I love them for that. Yeah. So here's maybe the uh, quote that you were thinking of earlier um, from Vito Roccafort. English indie rock was just boring. They were all these post Radiohead bands. Everybody in indie rock was trying to be Radiohead, but there's only one Radiohead. Yes. Uh, we're talking about the time when Coldplay was considered alternative. <laughs> um, I don't know if that makes me sad or happy. I know, right? <laughs> it's all yellow. Post-Britpop, oh, there was this uh, terrible Netherlands, I'm talking about Holland, uh, that was filled with Travis and Coldplay. Do you remember Travis? I do remember Travis. Yeah, that shit was tragic. <laughs> uh, Steve Sutherland described NME readers as being stinky kid, the stinky kid in the school playground with the big parka. Suddenly, when the strokes turned up, we were the cool kids again. So they were just basically saying that post Britpop was uh, filled with douchebags, and the strokes yeah. kind of brought back, which sounds right, the coolness to indie rock uh, of England. That does sound right. It's kind of like the uh, the American invasion or something. Oh yeah, Can't going let's back coi- the let's other coin way. Let's coin that if no one else has. Yeah, trademark that shit. And uh, so NME is really pulling the strings here in this first uh, time. Around that time, NME had a free CD on its cover that included the Modern Age, and that was the first thing that I heard and thought, "Hey, this is cool." This is fucking cool. Do you remember when uh, publications came with CDs? Yes. And I remember specifically buying my first issue of NME as a 20-year-old, but that record store in Broad Ripple. Mm-hmm. But I bought it there uh, along with uh, Feist, The Reminder. Two good pickups. But it still had a CD on it at that point. That was like mm-hmm. 2006. It's fun. It was like the compilations mm-hmm. of that year. Yeah. They, uh, they got in a couple of fights there, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> I mean, everyone seemed to, to absolutely love them. And um, after they got back, did they sign the... Uh, oh, here. So, um, Ryan Gentles. I'm going with that. That, that almost sounds, sounds like a, a porn name. <laughs> oh, really? I was thinking of a house cat. The Modern Age EP came out in the UK on Rough Trade, January 29th, 2001, basically right at the end of that mini tour that we were just talking about. Uh, while we were in UK, Doves asked us to open for them as main support on their upcoming US tour, which was going to be February, March of 2001. Uh, so when we got home, we were supporting them on tour. Uh, and I think that's when they started talks with... RCA, yeah, right? which 
something I learned from the book too that I loved is that one of RCA's like big booms financially was they they had the rights to the Macarena. The Macarena. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had Dave Matthews band, Christina Aguilera, the Ver Pipe, and of course the Macarena. The and of course the Macarena. Of, yeah. They kind of just throw that in at they the pa- end. I bet you that was probably. Yeah, that, I'm sure that was more successful than Dave Matthews' band and the Verb put together. Verb Pipe. Verb Pipe. We Verb and Verb Pipe, two different men. bands, little known fact. I didn't think that we will pass. <laughs> we never compromise. <laughs> um, so there was this interesting kind of uh, thing. Oh, here, it, it picks up on that kind of uh, you pay the sins of the... Um, you pay for the sins of the decade before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could tell that if you got it right with the strokes, it would make a certain type of music irrelevant. Something else on your roster that has been vibrant and important, it would be gone. Something like the strokes is going to be shocking in the same way that grunge was shocking to the world of hair bands. Do you think that's true? Do you, what, what, what was the what was the strokes shocking? The rap rock, the Limp Biscuit, um, uh, I think so. Yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. I think it was. Or the Dave Matthews, like the the late um, alt, quote unquote alternative rock that was supposedly right. coming out of that grunge, but it had nothing to do with it, like Coldplay or Dave Matthews or something like that. Yeah. I, I would also throw like late R.E.M. in there, which would oh. <laughs> people. Are <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. No, people are going to be upset about that. I might be the only person that thinks that way. <laughs> um but yeah, it was. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it, but it does seem like a shock to that system of this just fucking garbage rock. Mm-hmm. Like, like that quote said that I said at the beginning, and you said too. Like people are either trying to be Radiohead or I don't know, like this jam band shit, like Dave Matthews. I don't know it. it it does seem more different than everything coming out at the time, more so retrospectively than it did to me at the time. What do you happening. think Cobain would have made of the Strokes? I mean, we know what I he think would he think probably of would have thought they were Dave sellouts. Matthews band. Yeah, even though they kind of uh, them and the White Stripes kind of came back to something that sounded way more like them in the terms of that it was just more straightforward. I didn't have the grunge, but I I would think that Kurt Cobain probably would have appreciated the White Stripes more than the Strokes. Mm. Yeah, obviously pure speculation. I'm not friends with him. He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> would you uh, Would you think of uh, what um, Jack White said of uh, New York, like in the intro to the book? Or not the intro, but the very first chapter, or... No, in uh, uh, chapter 27, this is from Chloe Walsh, but I remember I had the Strokes EP because I loved it, and Jack saw it, and he had never heard them, uh, but people were asking him about them in interviews, so uh, he put it on. He kind of... Ellipses. His reaction was along the lines of, that's it? Three songs? 
Meg was not remotely interested. Uh, <laughs> Jack complained a lot about New York. He hated it. He still hates it. He was wearing his red pants and a white T-shirt, and he asked me to find a Sharpie, and he and Meg, uh, he had Meg write on his T-shirt, New York confuses me. Uh, <laughs> when we went outside to the bottom of my street on Ludlow and Canal, he had a picture taken uh, with the Twin Towers behind them with that shirt that says New York confuses me. Those were the early press shots. I mean, I'd, <laughs> I think that's fair. <laughs> New York. What do you think confused him about it? Do you think it was just all these people trying to be cool that he was meeting? Yeah, but I think as much as Jack White rejects it, he's trying to be cool as hard as anyone. So I think he was maybe trying to reject this idea of what is cool. And that was... New mm-hmm. York in the late 90s, early 2000s. I love uh, Kid Congo's um, recollection of meeting the White Stripes and they came into this um, thrift shop that he had. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> they were looking at the old men's bathing suits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that had red and white stripes on them. You're like, oh, come on. You guys got to be the White Stripes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I no, Jack White wants to be cool more than anyone, I really think. I just I feel like he didn't like how everyone was trying to be the way in which people were trying to be cool in New York. Yes. And I, I think that he was trying to be cool in a very different way mm-hmm. by not dressing like the people in New York. So when he saw it, he was like, this is like New York's always been cool. That, I'm saying that's what he thinks in his mind. Yeah. And then he got there and he's like, oh, I don't like how this is cool. It, it, it was funny, his recollection of um, like being annoyed with everyone putting a two-piece band in front of them. Yes, I really liked that. So, yeah, when we roll into blah, 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 Ohio, and there would be a, a no-bass band with a girl on drums booked to, the, to play with us, we'd say, of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny that he said blah, 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 Ohio, because you could just put Akron, Ohio in there, and the band would be right. the Black Keys. <laughs> I really liked the uh, the recollection of uh, the White Stripes started, uh, staying at Karen O's house. <laughs> they played Super Mario Kart or something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, it starts out, it's like Jack White stayed at Karen O's house, and you're like, oh, did they hook up? And then, in the, like, the next paragraph is Karen O saying, like, yeah, you just played, like, Mario Kart all night. And then Jack White said, a girl and I stayed at Karen's house. I forget, I forget the girl's her name. name. I remember says. her dress, though. Yeah. That's the funniest thing. I remember. I don't remember her name, but I do remember that dress she was wearing. Yeah. I... <laughs> Uh, you know from knowing me forever, I'm like the biggest White Stripes fan ever, but Jack White is a piece of shit. Like, we can all acknowledge that, right? So is Julian Casablanca. So oh, yeah. He was very uh, aware that he was like, people think I'm an asshole. Do you think I'm an asshole? Am I an asshole? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's these they large, large, successful rock stars. You know what it is, is that they think to themselves, if I only had a talent, the girls would like me. And then they have the talent and the girls like me. And then they get all like, but you just like me for my talent, not because of who I am. 
Right. It's kind of like a mind fuck. So they almost resent the girls from liking. They they resent the girls that like them because they only like them for the talent. Yet it was the talent that they wanted to use to try to get the girls' attention. It's yeah. fucked up, man. It's like. <laughs> Like I'm, I'm interested to see if uh, we get more on Paul Banks because he admitted that. Yeah, that's the rock star in the nutshell, right there. You just want girls to like you, oh. and then you get butt hurt that they only like you because you're an amazing guitarist. Right. It's like all. It's like a slightly more complicated version of a Catch Twenty Two. <laughs> I know. It's a douche twenty two. <laughs> Douche 22. That is also a name for something. It's got to be. <laughs> so they come back. They make the record deal. Uh, they make Is This It? Uh, and this is the summer of 2001. The Strokes here. Yes. And this is kind of where we'll end because basically this is kind of the crescendo here. As, as they're making their deal and going back out on tour, Rough Trade comes in and and uh, signs moldy peaches. Yeah, the name of that chapter is like everyone is getting signed, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so basically, the <laughs> the funny thing was uh, Adam Green. They took me to pick a bagel. I always <laughs> hear these stories about how you get signed and you make them take you to uh, Nobu and shit. Rough Trade took me to pick a bagel. <laughs> we signed for a thousand dollars. After that, everybody got signed. <laughs> He took me to pick a bagel. Pick a bagel. <laughs> this is so sad. I feel bad for him. And, and for a thousand dollars, like, what are you going to do for a thousand dollars? The bottle of wine uh, that the Strokes ordered at just like one of their meetings with RCA was a thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> took me to pick a bagel now uh just get just get like a regular cream cheese i'm not paying for one of those fucking fancy yeah. cream cheeses <laughs> all right you can pick a bagel but you're not getting those <laughs> pick a bagel. you're not getting <laughs> no egg sandwiches nothing just a schmear yeah not one of those fancy schmears either you don't get a vegetable you don't get a strawberry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just a regular schmear uh, Luke Jenner gets signed. He gets an NME. It seems like NME is kind of running the scene back in um, New York as well. Yeah, it, it's kind of one of the only publications that's like coming out weekly and really like uh, tracking all this shit here. Yeah, those Brits, man. I'm telling you, I read the foreign news to understand my nation. <laughs> well, well placed. Thank you. Uh, and so, yeah, it kind of ends with the cover <laughs> of NME being We Heart New York. Uh, that cover is legendary. They asked the Strokes about 70s New York. Like, uh, they asked about CBGBs, and I remember them saying, like, what? CBGB sucks. Don't go there. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, CBGB technically does still exist, but it is a god-awful hellhole now. Yeah, that's funny. I wasn't trying to be funny. That's why it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so everything is turning up New York, basically. Everyone's getting signed. Yep. There's a fever to the city. And then September 11th happens. Oops. It, it was 
really interesting to hear the firsthand accounts of I them know it being really in was. the city. Yeah. I feel like I've, I've heard so many first-hand accounts before, but it never occurred to me that all of these artists that I love so much actually experience this in real life. And how people were just kind of on their roofs uh, of their buildings, yeah. kind of like witnessing it, and it was all surreal, and then everyone kind of went to the bars and was getting fucked up and shit. Like, mm-hmm. It was really interesting how it kind of all played out in the aftermath, too. All of them kind of tell their stories. Uh, the, the one from Moby was really interesting. It's that yeah. thing where 99.999% of what we experience is stuff we've already experienced. We touch a teacup, and in some archetypal, compartmentalized level, it reminds us of every other teacup we've touched, the weight, the temperature, everything about it. Uh, rarely do we experience anything genuinely new. I looked up and these hu- saw these huge flames billowing out of the twin towers, and my brain couldn't process it because I never, I couldn't figure out what was happening. There was this lapse of I don't know what I'm experiencing, and all the roofs of all the buildings around me were covered with people screaming and pointing. Yeah, it's weird to think about because. Like, even though I live in, like, deep Brooklyn, like, if you go up on my roof, you can see the World Trade Center. Yeah. So it would have been an experience people were having Yeah, all over uh, all of the boroughs. They were that big. Yeah. And, like, a lot of people, like, the accounts from the artists, they, they like, most of them lived in Manhattan at that point, too. A lot of them, in like, in the village, which is pretty close to there. Yes. Yeah, uh, and close enough to get all of like the haze and the smoke and kind of yep. getting that real. Um, uh, there's an account from um, the uh, listener of TV on the radio that I'll read here in a second. But there's just this um, kind of ominous, kind of weird, otherworldly thing that these people are experiencing that are that are in Manhattan there, mm-hmm. and uh, he's he's in Williamsburg and. He had this real kind of eerie experience where he walked down onto Grand Street in Williamsburg. We all stopped there and we were just staring at it. And this guy walked by. Uh, if this were a movie, the guy would be foreshadowing the next 15 years. We're all staring at this building, freaked out, just really, really freaked out, wondering what's happening. And this guy stops next to us. He's got a briefcase and a tie. He's a little bit older than us. And he's like, oh, my God, a lot of my clients of mine were in that building. I probably just lost a lot of clients. We all looked at him and before we realized what was happening, we were holding Dave back because he was about to beat the shit out of this guy. We were all thinking like, what the fuck is this dude even doing here? That was weird. That, that is such a weird kind of like eerie arbinger of, uh, the future. Yeah. that, That was one of the most fascinating things to me so far in this book. He follows it. He follows it up at the end um, by saying that guy in the suit, he was the canary in the fucking coal mine. I feel like New York was about to turn into what it is now earlier. And then 9-11 paused it. Fascinating. Fascinating. So that's basically the beginnings of this whole scene. So there might have been a little pause uh, from 9-11 but this is the scene, and these bands are going to be the bands of the next 10 years, and that they yeah. are going to create the new 
New York that was going to be built up in the wake of 9-11. That's the really interesting thing is that now all eyes are on New York City after 9-11. Yeah. Right? It, well, and totally coincidentally, that's just when I was getting into music and like all of my favorite bands pretty much are post 9-11 New York. So I'm really yeah. interested to see how the story plays out in the book. So everyone's super pro New York. And so it, 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 it's a wonder if this scene wouldn't be as big as it was mm-hmm. had it not been that all eyes were on New York City and everyone was was so pro New York City and and maybe listening to New York City bands and and liking them and supporting New York City bands was a way to support the city after what happened. Yeah, almost like an immediate like morbid nostalgia i guess because mm-hmm. well, there's nothing you can do in reality they they talk about um which i felt in the moment i kind of felt this way but uh they talk about people that that came to kind of looky-loo the big pile of ash and rubble you yeah. know and uh they were just like, what, what do you, this is kind of a weird rubbernecking kind of thing phenomenon Mm -hmm. that that's going on. But you, you do feel like there's nothing that you can do. So you want to do something, you know? So people in a lot of ways probably went there wanting to help. Obviously they can. So they're just like staring at the rubble. And so anything New York, you're pro, you know, you're like, Oh, it's great that the giants won or something. Sure. Yeah. Like you, you hate the fucking giants, but it's like, Oh, you're pro New York for this moment. And so, um, it's really interesting that all of this great music was percolating right before that. And then it's almost as if they had this national stage now. Yeah. It, it takes like some horrible event. Some t- like looking back on it, like if you look at this in like a thousand years or something, you'd be like, mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. that all these New York bands were super popular. Cause there's mm-hmm. this. Yeah other like giant thing that has happened but when you like live it in the moment it's it it is Mm -hmm. hard to separate i think but but you're right it it is this will historically if we are around much longer as human beings (laughs) which who's to say (laughs) yeah right i think we're still living in that post-apocalyptic 9-11 world it feels like we're just lingering now (laughs) So, yeah, to get back to your point, it's not as if it's like a benefit of 9-11 that these bands got notoriety, but it is kind of cause and effect. Everyone was looking at New York, and here is this huge pool of bands that are just starting out that everyone can be like, fuck yeah, New York. I heart New York. Yeah. It's like the longer you look over history, like everything seems like this giant coincidence. And that is one of them. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that that was a big chunk of the book. I think we really got we really got into the meat of uh, of the book. We probably get what maybe three, two or three more sessions on this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at this pace. <laughs> so this is it. This is our last uh, episode. Uh, do you have anything? Uh, I know you're always. Uh, <laughs> claiming claiming the apocalypse of the radio care. You, you no less than twenty episodes did you say we were going to quit the podcast. <laughs> 
fact. Uh, I don't deny it. But we did it. We did music for 2017. What a year to start a music podcast. What a goddamn year. A lot year. of good fucking shit out this year. Yeah. Lots of really good shit. A great music year. I don't know how 2018 is going to follow it up. Not well. We're all going to die. The podcast is going to be <laughs> over. <laughs> we don't even have to worry about it. <laughs> we got a few things uh, probably coming out uh, after Christmas. A few bonus EPs, uh, a couple of compilations, clip shows, putting together top fives from different genres. I'm kind of excited about that. Me too. We're going to do our airing of grievances, and we'll put that probably, filter it in with the with the clip shows. So be looking for those bonus contents. But for uh, all intents and purposes, I think that does it for us this year. Oh. <laughs> See what I did there? Happy Holidays. It's been a great year in music, and I've had an awesome time talking about it with you, buddy. Talking to you, Jer. I've had an awesome time talking to you, too. I know. This has been such a fun year to talk about, and I hope next year is the same. We'll be back after Christmas, like I said, with a few bonus EPs. Be looking out for those. But until next time, be safe, stay warm, and rock on, motherfuckers. Rock. Radio Care has left the building. Has left the bathroom. Are you going to say bye? Bye. For the last time? I just did. Quitting the podcast. Bye.